Welcome to Borderlandia, the podcast where we embark on a journey to explore and celebrate the cultural heritage of the borderlands. I'm your host, Alex Lapierre, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this immersive exploration of the rich tapestry that makes up our binational region. Hello, everybody. This is Alex LaPierre, co-founder of Borderlandia. Uh, I'm joined today by Jack Williams with the Center for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. And today's subject for the podcast is something really interesting. I, I really like this kind of thematic approach to history. Uh, and we're going to kind of talk about the, the transportation and the different corridors of travel in northern New Spain, the, the borderlands that we now, now know between the U.S. and Mexico. Good morning, Jack. Thanks for joining us. What really caused your attention in the in the subject of transportation uh, in what was then northern New Spain? Well, one of the things over the years I've noticed is there's been a strong tendency to imagine the various expeditions, not only the military expeditions, but the colonizing expeditions, such as the Anza expeditions to California, in terms of a kind of a model which which emerged out of i think more than any place else hollywood and what what we see is a strong tendency to reduce all these different kinds of expeditions to a kind of cattle drive mentality so we we see a concept of uh people being very informal getting together and going on to the road or the the trail so to speak and moving forward on a pretty ad hoc basis with really very little regard to what would have been the normal military planning and security measures that would have been taken in the colonial period. So and you can see this in the artwork and, and a lot of it goes back to um, curiously Hollywood because in the early days of Hollywood, of course, the when they were making films about all sorts of historical events, the people that they actually hired to not only be stuntmen, but to serve as writers in, in films about even like the Crusades and ancient Rome, those individuals were largely cowboys. And they took what they were familiar with and used it as kind of a way of organizing things. So uh, we see this kind of cowboy-like effect over a very broad area of culture, but I think it's definitely influenced not only the the artwork and illustrations of, of things like the Anza expeditions, but very much in, I think, the way that the public imagines these operations took place. Yeah, there's a lot of different things that have been talked about. The uh, you know travel back, you know, back in the time of colonial New Spain. Uh, one of the the sayings you hear a lot is you know how these missions or different communities were placed within you know a horse a horse rides a day's horse ride. Uh, from each other. Is there any truth to these kind of sayings? Well, there's certainly no truth to the missions being founded in a day's ride from each other. They, uh, I mean, if, if that were true, and you look at the actual order of their founding, it's quite clear that that was not the intent, because of course they are kind of all over what will become the coastal region of the state of California, for instance. What is 
what is true is they definitely had designated camping places along the along the major routes but they didn't have anything approaching that kind of you know a day's journey and then having a settlement or something like that so yeah that's that's not a not a, an accurate one probably not as bad as all the roof tiles were made on indian maiden's thighs but but probably up there with myths of the, the frontier you mentioned the uh, the different stops. You know, they talk about how in New Mexico along El Camino Real de la Tierra Adentro that there's even, you can still see the locations uh, from the disturbance of the regular flora and fauna there of, of campsites from what? It's 500, almost 500 year old history. Uh, have you been to some of those sites? Oh, yeah. Um, parajes. They're usually called parajes. Um, there, there's, they're out there, and uh, you can certainly find quite a, quite a few of them in New Mexico, where they've been studied to a limited extent, and they frequently produce artifacts that are colonial. You know what you're looking for. There's stuff around. They're certainly not the, the richest source of uh, material remains, but they're definitely recognizable. And of course, the the, the Camino Real a Tierra Adentro was, was a much more elaborate roadway than most of the Caminos Reales of the, you know, quote, royal highways. That is to say the main routes that crisscrossed the frontier. And it was, it was much more developed. Of course, in the south, it had formal bridges and things like that. But as you move further north, even in those areas, uh, you could follow the ruts and the rocks and things where the wheels of iron you know iron tired vehicles went but that was really very very different from the kind of pack mule trails that like uh, the Pimaria alta had and one of the things that becomes very clear is that many of the routes that we're talking about really represent more of a like a transportation corridor than one single trail because they um they were variable quality depending on the season of the year so in the rainy season, you don't want to go down in the arroyos, and in the uh, in the in the dry season, you don't want to go up on the hillsides because it's a lot more work. So the reality is is that we're talking about multiple parallel routes rather than being just a single main route. Now, as I said, the the Camino Real Tierra Adentro was a little different, you know, connecting Santa Fe down to. Chihuahua and then to central Mexico. It was a very formal road, but that was the exception, not, not the rule. And, you know, what about accounts of what it was like to travel uh, in northern New Spain? Uh, I recall that Zebulon Pike of the famous Pike's Peak uh, was captured and sent down to Chihuahua along the old El Camino. Is there any other accounts that uh, people should be aware of, of kind of speaking of about travel? Well, one that frequently gets cited in terms of things in general is Josiah Gregg's narrative of New Mexico. He was a Santa Fe trader, and but he left a good descriptions, and many of which can be applied to the colonial period. As a whole, what we don't have are a lot of personal diaries, the kind of which you see sometimes for like the Oregon Trail and things like that. But such things do exist, but they're very scarce. Some of the um, one of the best narratives that I know of was by an, uh, an Irish priest uh, named Murphy, Father Morphy, and he was the chaplain of, of Tiro de Croix, 
the uh, Commandant General of the Provincias Internas, and he made this very long journey from central Mexico to Orizpe, uh, when when the uh, headquarters of the Comandancia was placed there. And in that narrative, unlike the standard traveling narratives, which are sort of like we came and went so many leagues and then we camped, it was a personal narrative. So he talks about doing things like fishing on the trail and, you know, quite a quite a breadth of activities, the kind of food they ate, you know, and things like that. So they do exist, but they're they're scarce. And of course, it was a tremendously different kind of a world to have gone on long distance trips on. But if you can think about it, you know, the vastness of this region. And then you combine that with the fact that there were no signs virtually. And uh, so knowing where you were and navigating, a lot of it was uh, based upon familiarity with the shape of hills and mountains and, and uh, particular little micro environments. So it, it really took a, a certain kind of memory and uh, talent to be able to figure out the very basics. And then you, beyond this, one, as I sort of we started, you know, looking at this idea of the cattle drive as a model, uh, what, what is probably a more appropriate model is one that sees this as, a, as these are essentially military operations. And we know a great deal about the details of military operations like these from the uh, official books of instruction for training the Spanish army at the time which would have been also used in uh, northern New Spain. And uh, so we, we see a very different organizational sense. For example, the typical arrangement was to have the main parties divided up into uh, thirds with a advanced guard, the uh, kind of main, main group, and then a rear guard. And then in addition to that, sometimes as much as maybe a mile away from the main column, you would have had what were called in English flankers, which were essentially men that were stationed to go way out on the sides to make sure there was no ambush coming. You, you have them on the extreme, like one would be on the, the right of the column and one on the left. And so the columns would move with the vanguard in the front, and they would be the ones that would, you know, uh, usually encounter anything interesting. And they there's usually where the officers are. The senior officers are with the vanguard is pretty pretty normal, and the uh, the rear guard would would be a, generally a smaller military command. So the main party of like the Anza expedition, which would have included the livestock and the, and the colonists, would have been in that main group, traveling in, in the middle of all this, so to speak. And then when they camped and organized things like that, it was also not not the kind of hodgepodge set up the pup tent thing that we see in some of the illustrations. It was much more organized. The officers had much more elaborate tents than the enlisted men. In many cases, the enlisted men on a lot of these expeditions slept under brush lean-tos. They didn't even uh, bring tents. Uh, tents were relatively scarce. But when there were tents, they were not just, you know, um, stuck here and there. They would have been organized and laid out and, and segregated there was a great deal of segregation by class. So um, the officers would have their own sort of place to be. And typically the like priests or groups like that that were accompanying them would be with the officers. 
The officers also typically had their own food that they brought on these expeditions and sometimes pretty fancy stuff. So you, you get the impression that they were dining rather elegantly and probably with a, there's at least a few accounts that, that suggest that they actually brought like silverware and, uh, and, and plates with them. So you would have seen people dining on, you know, uh, Loza Blanca de Puebla on Mayolica plates, you know, as it, it, at, among the officers. And of course, the enlisted men was much, much less elaborate than that. They, they generally cooked out of a single copper pot. And uh, we talked a little bit about this, I think, last session where they, you know, panoli was one of the big things they ate a, or drank a lot of, I think it's fair to say, because it was ground up and mixed with water. Heated when they could. And of course, if it was a military operation and an offensive one, they wouldn't have any campfires at night. And so everything was being eaten at room temperature. It would have been a, a, a lot less pleasant. But um, all of that was designed to ensure that they would get surprised when they attacked the, an enemy an Indian rancheria. So that was kind of their, their goal. But in any event, I think that for people interested in what these expeditions were like, it was much more formally organized than has been suggested in uh, a lot of the popular stuff. And unfortunately, because it was, it was very common and standard to organize military expeditions in this way, it typically didn't get written down. And so what you occasionally will have is a reference to something like the Vanguard or something like that. But what you don't generally find is that in each one of these, uh, especially military diaries, they lay out all these details because everyone did it that way. So they didn't feel it was necessary to record. And we reconstructed it using our cowboy template. And what else about the Anza Trail that you think that would be really important for people to, to know? Um, I know that the, the priest brought along um, navigation equipment, actually, too. Yeah, there was an astrolab that got brought. And, and uh, there was a famous in disagreement between Garces and Anza over who, who should have it. Out in the Yuma sand dunes, I guess there was some kind of a open debate. I, I can't remember if it was Garces or Anza that, that grabbed it and couldn't figure out how to make it work. Well, they definitely did use some primitive navigational devices. And um, it's, it's unfortunate in a way because when you look at some of the maps of not only the Anza expedition, but of, of that colonial period, you get the impression that the Spanish could not make really detailed accurate maps, which isn't the case. If you look at the uh, maritime maps that were made of the coastline in the um, period between, say, 1769 and 1780, there are very accurate maps, accurate enough to be clearly recognizable. Now, the Spanish kept a lot of their maps secret. And um, what you have in many cases, like um, there's a fairly famous, I think it's a map, I think it's in Palu that shows the Yuma settlements. In any event, um, it's an extremely diagrammatic map. It's, it's not terribly accurate. So there were, they did have a lot of problems because to, to, to do really accurate mapping, you needed to have um, exacting time pieces, which were difficult to carry on the trail. So their maps were at best, the, 
in, in terms of what soldiers had in the field were pretty primitive. But the Spanish were quite capable of making extraordinarily accurate topographical maps in this time period, and they do exist. Many of them were kept secret, and they, were, you know, they they really didn't emerge until the 20th century that people could start seeing them because they were kept as state secrets in Spain. Because of course maps were extremely valuable for military planning, and so everybody wanted to keep their own high quality maps secret. But in any event. If you look at some of the maps that have been published over the years, like uh, some of the really broad maps that Kino kind of prepared, um, they wouldn't be very useful for you to find your way across the desert. That really took a different kind of sensibility about navigation. And as I said, a, a lot of it, like especially on the Anza Trail, followed a kind of logic of knowing you're following this watershed and you're following this river. And it's headed for a point, you know, point down further. And so you're following its general direction. And at the same time, you're looking for landmarks, most of which would have been, I think, distinctive peaks, things like that, that would let you know that you were uh, in the right position in your approximate location on, on the trail. But it was, it was way less, it was a, a far more difficult task than we imagine today. And when you think about somebody like Anza and his career and all the different routes he took, he, he almost certainly was probably quite talented at figuring that kind of thing out. I'm sure he was, or he would probably not have survived. But he, he was capable of navigating even in the forested country, like in some of his campaigns that he fought into southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. You know, those are heavily forested areas. And that's a really different set of propositions for navigation than out in the, the desert, and, you know, out towards Gila Bend and things like that. It's really different. But reading all the signs and understanding trails and, and then also being able to recognize activities of people that might be wishing you harm was a really important skill. And... Um, the Anza expeditions in particular, you have to really recognize that much of that expedition was, was going through what could be conceived of as enemy country. So I, I'm absolutely certain that it was not a frolicking cattle drive, you know, uh, you know, to California. It was definitely a military operation and would have been organized as such. And it would have been very irresponsible not, not to have done that. And Anza was good at it. There's no question about it. He was good at it, given his long lists of accomplishments, and the diverse places that he visited and, and went to. Jack, well, what is curious is that his first expedition to California, he chose to go the southern route through Caborca and up the Camino de, de, del Diablo and then come back the way that was eventually selected for the colonizing expedition. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that was? Well, there's a lot of different things that go into planning and choosing a route. Probably the most obvious one in the Pimaria Alta and in the general area of this sort of Sonoran Desert and Southern California Desert was choosing the right time of year to make sure that you had as abundant water resources as was possible. You really see this in some considerable detail in the counts of the Elizondo expedition uh, against the Cerro Prieto, because 
when it got dry, like early spring, May, June, July, early July, before the monsoons hit, finding enough water to, to, to uh, keep your horses alive was, was really a trick. So you want to choose a well-watered pathway. That's why following a river is a really good idea. But then you also have to take into account potential areas for things like ambush and um, having clear visible landmarks that you can move move towards. So um, when you look at the colonization trail, it, it clearly is better marked in that sense than almost any other way. I mean, it was it followed a very simple logic of you know getting to the Gila and then moving along the Gila towards uh, the Yuma Crossing. Now the Yuma Crossing was really critical because south of Yuma was swampland. It was extremely uh, marshy, and you 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 couldn't really easily get through there with horses. And then north of Yuma, there aren't very many good places to cross the river. There just aren't very many vados that are that are feasible. And there were two things at the Yuma Crossing that were really valuable. One was the the crossing site proper, which is between two rocky hills. And of course, it still is today. That's why the railroad used those same hills to uh, build their crossing across the Colorado. And so that was a strategic place. Now, typically, when Anza got there, Indians would have had to ferry you across, literally. And you couldn't just, you know, especially if the river was high, there was no way you could just like ride your horse and jump in the river and get across. But north of there, at the place that was called San Pedro y San Pablo, was another crossing. And it was the most important strategic crossing of the river in the lower Colorado, because what essentially happened was the river broke into three channels and the channels were separated by sort of sandy islands inside the main river course. And so you could cross over the Vado from the Arizona side to one of those little islands and then to another little island and then across to what is the California side. So it was quite feasible to bring something like the Anza expedition through that location, through, through those Vados, than it was to um, cross almost any place else. And it just so happened that that location was very close to the junction of the Gila and the Colorado. So if you could find the junction of the Gila and the Colorado, you could find that San Pedro de San Pablo crossing and uh, you could get across there. So it was fortunate for the Anza expedition. There weren't more obstacles like the Colorado River that would really require extraordinary ability to get across. Jack, linking this to kind of the economy, how would we, you know, uh, would we most have often seen, uh, you know, mule trains with like, you know, shipments of silver to the south? Or would we have seen wagons? What would have kind of been the, um, the typical means of transportation that we would have seen along these routes? Well, there were plenty of larger operations moving cargo, freight going north and south. I don't think you would have seen too much in in the way of uh, like ore moving from the from the north to the south because there was more of the processing of the ore in place by the 18th century. Um, back in the days of the 16th century, you actually saw ore being sent to Mexico City, for example. But I don't think you saw much of that in Sonora, 
And so you would have seen these larger groups. And of course, some of it had to do with the logistics of food. As the mining frontier developed in, in Sonora, there was a tremendous need for cattle. And so you would have seen cattle drives. And, and there, of course, the development of the mining frontier then served as a stimulus to raising cattle and then bringing the cattle in because the cattle were conceived of as an excellent source of protein. So they were extremely popular as a food source in, um, in all, all along the mining frontier. So you would have seen that sort of thing. You would have seen freighters bringing up luxury goods from Mexico. And they also organized into large uh, operations with mule trains. And if you're, if you're interested in details about that, Josiah Gregg, as I mentioned, is the place to go because he was very interested in how the mule trains and freighting worked. And so he provides excellent details on that. And then you would have also seen smaller parties. And it was the smaller parties that were the most vulnerable because um, throughout the 18th century, the Apaches used to come into Sonora in uh, small raiding groups, up to about 50, 60 warriors, but typically more like 20. And they would find a good place for an ambush. And they would wait, not for one of those giant operations, but for a small group of people traveling about, maybe a priest and a couple of soldiers, and they would, they would attack them. And so traveling in small numbers was, a, was very dangerous. And there's a huge number of casualties that you can point to, people that died on the trail, basically, being ambushed. And they, they would go after even sometimes uh, presidio columns. It wasn't unknown. Uh, but most of these raids were designed to steal. And they, would, uh, they came into Sonora. They would attack maybe two or three places, burn down a couple of ranches and then collect the stolen materials in some sort of temporary camp and then move back north of, of the Pimaria into the Apacheria. And that was going on all the time. So you, you never knew when you were going to encounter one of these Apache raider uh, groups. And there's a, there's a tremendous amount of information that has survived about those operations because of course they lasted into the Mexican period and an um, anthropologist named Grenville Goodwin recorded and a tiny portion of that was published by Keith Basso years ago in something called Apache Warfare and Raiding. Um, but there's a much larger set of information about that. It never got published. And it's fascinating to look at and, 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 and to go through in part because it does give you some sense of how dangerous it was to travel. It also really points to the fact that uh, the Apaches were... Um, at times, they looked so similar to the people they were attacking that uh, one of the interesting things is there's one mention of the fact that the Apaches were wearing like red armbands so they could tell whose side they were on in fighting with Mexicanos in uh, Sonora. And I, I'm sure this goes back into the colonial period. So that, you know, uh, we often think about the Indians looking quite distinctively different, but I'm not sure that's really the case. I think they looked pretty. Pretty much, they had the same kind of riding equipment and uh, clothing to a considerable extent. They overlapped. So it was a very dangerous thing to go traveling, especially if you were on assignment like a, a priest being sent to a mission out in a remote area. Good chance you'd end up looking like a pincushion. 
Jack, we're, we're, we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of, of the Anza expedition, you know, in 2025 and 2026. Um, what, what, what are some of the things that you think that uh, we should commemorate at, with this, with this uh, milestone coming upon us now about the Anza expedition? Well, God knows what it will be like. That's all I can say, because the, the reality of, of changing attitudes about the colonial era are so profound right now. It's, it's hard to imagine, be able to predict. 50 years ago, they would almost certainly have celebrated it with reenactments. And, um, and, and of course, the 200th of the Anza expedition produced a tremendous interest in equestrians. People that ride horses got very involved. And, you know, there were reenactments from, from California all the way to, to the border and beyond. But I'm not sure that that will ever happen again. There is such a strong animus opposing the colonial period. And I, I think it's pretty clear that the Park Service has tried to deal with this, sometimes as best they can, by emphasizing the cooperative and peaceful aspects of the expedition. And I mean, it, that is understandable, but it's also in some ways a mischaracterization. I mean, uh, the reality was is that, you know, the purpose of the Anza expedition was overtly imperialistic. <laughs> I mean, they were trying to sew together these remote regions of the Spanish Empire and the idea that they were part of a process of conquest and civilization, which are no longer very popular ideas were nonetheless the basis of the whole operation. So it's interesting to see how different values have become reflected in all this. Nowadays, you know, you're more likely to see an attempt, for example, to emphasize the racial diversity of the people that were involved with the expedition and not to talk about like Indian fighting. And uh, you might see a great deal of emphasis placed on um, the fact that Salvador Palma, the head of the Quetzal Nation of the Yuma Indians, so-called Yuma Indians, that, that he was friendly with, with Anza and all that part of the story, without noting that he later got involved in the uprising that destroyed the Yuma settlements. It, it, is, it is a weird kind of whitewashing of some of these events, I think. Um, but what will people do to commemorate? That's an interesting question, a very interesting question. I mean, I was very much involved with the, I guess it was the uh, 250th of the San Diego Mission founding. And, it, you know, all these issues of uh, woke sensibilities became very apparent in, in the way that not only the public interacted, but the general way that the, the story was presented. So what had once been the birth of civilization in San Diego, so to speak, became more characterized like the evil arrival of Europeans that killed all the Indians. I got involved a little bit of this with the Anza Trail because I was on the Secretary of the Interior's advisory board that helped put together the trail. And um, like the logo of the trail is a, an Indian guiding a Spanish soldier, which I assume is sort of like Anza being guided by this Indian. And it, it is absolutely honest to say there was cooperation between Native Americans and Europeans in the operation. But it's also unfair not to recognize that there was a kind of conquest mentality and there was a, uh, a great deal of fear. And, and of course, Anza himself was an Indian fighter, uh, probably first and foremost. 
I mean, that's one of the things that I think often gets confused about Anza is he's seen as sort of like a, a benevolent, almost Santa Claus like figure with his you know, big beard, which he probably didn't have, which is based on that portrait. When you look at his life and his, you know, the death of his, his father and, you know, growing up in Fronteras and um, spending almost all of his life fighting Indians, it's pretty clear that he was not altogether positive about his feelings towards Native Americans. I don't think he necessarily thought all of them should be killed, but he was quite, quite aggressive in his Indian fighting, I think is fair to say which probably explains how he survived. And whether it was fighting Comanches or Apaches or, or you know, potentially Southern California Indians, he was, he was a soldier. And uh, that, that, I think, if I had to say one, one chapter of the, the Anza story, which is not told hardly at all, is that military chapter. It's just gotten shorter and shorter play. And I think it is a reflection of contemporary issues. I think the Park Service avoids talking about it too much because it, it clearly would not help promote the, the values of the trail that would fit into the larger national agendas about these topics. Well, certainly the circumstance of his father's death, um, you know, being, uh, you know, ambushed close to the, the loop of the Santa Cruz River on the, on the Mexican side of the border here, that probably played into his, you know, later actions, right? As you, as you call him uh, an Indian fighter. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question about that. And, and of course, he grew up in the Vildosola family in, um, in Fronteras. And they were all, you know, Fronteras was as bloody a place as you could get in terms of fighting the Apaches. And it was a constantly a target. And uh, he was very much, like I said, a soldier. In some ways, he's a bit of an enigma. He almost certainly, I also suspect, was a fairly literary kind of a guy because a lot of his interactions with senior officers showed that he was familiar with what they were interested in and was considered to be an educated person which for a criollo that had been raised on the frontier was pretty unusual there were plenty of indian fighters in the pimaria but most of them could not have expressed themselves with the elegance that anza did and you see this in particular in uh, Father Murphy's diary during the time period that he's serving as chaplain in 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 Arispe. and um, there's a lot of curious stuff in there about the personalities of people he interacts with, and it's quite clear that Anza is a, is well respected. And of course, another thing that uh, you know the late Don Garate often emphasized, which was I think reasonable too, uh, was the fact that he was a very proud Viscaino. He was very proud Basque. And the, the Basque group on the frontier really did represent a distinct ethnic group. It wasn't just a vague, oh, yeah, you're, you had ancestors from Vizcaya. That, that was much more important than that. And there was a whole, a whole lot of juxtaposition of people to be engaged in, for example, charitable institutions that were related to the Basque nation. Father Murphy talks about some of those charitable things. And of course, it also points to the fact that for those not like Anza, like, for example, Jose Antonio Bildosola, who I often talk about him as being kind of the anti-Anza. He was a poor quality soldier who was incompetent, not loved by his men, 
and engaged in all sorts of debauchery and uh, inappropriate behavior and robbing his own soldiers. But in any event, uh, when you look at him, he, he clearly tries to bribe his way out of all sorts of circumstances and by giving to some of these charities in, in Arispe when he's there. But that diary is particularly important because it does provide a lot of insight into those simple things like what people had for breakfast. And I remember there's a long passage segment of it where um, people in Arispe probably would relate to this, that the the chaplain had a problem in his quarters, which was at the rear of the um, old Jesuit friary at the main church there with a rattlesnake. He got a rattlesnake that moved in and he had to eventually kill it. But he, he, he describes this long battle he had finally kind of getting the snake and taking it out. Which, you know, those kind of problems still exist if you're around rattlesnakes. They, may, they can move in and make your life a challenge. So yeah, the, the Murphy diary is really useful. That He also, besides looking at some of these less than honorable men, he goes on and on about some of the commanders um, like who had a romantic inclination. For example, one of the famous inspectors, and he was like under, this would have been the next tier command down from Croy, then he had these sub-inspectors essentially. And one of them was named Roque de Medina, and I had read a lot of Roque de Medina's papers because he, he, he routinely inspected presidios and wrote reports about them. But in any event, it turns out that Roque was a bit of a rake in Arispe. So he was like trying to get all the young girls there. And um, to the point where it became enough of an escandalo that it got into Murphy's diary. Pretty funny. But, you know, we, we, we sometimes don't imagine those parts of life on the frontier, but they, they did exist. They just didn't get recorded very frequently. I mean, it would be wonderful if we had a diary like that of, of Tubac or of, uh, of Tucson, but we don't. Uh, we could still discover one potentially, but as of now, we don't have anything like that. So we have to depend much more on things like um, Ignaz Pfefferkorn's narrative, you know, provides a lot of the the more personal details. But, you, you know, you have to take Pfefferkorn with a bit of uh, salt, too, because, of course, he wrote after having been exiled and kicked out of the Spanish Empire. So he had nothing good to say about people of New Spain. M Murphy's diary is, is, in that sense, less tainted. And in some ways, it's more detailed and more personal because it's not a reminiscence. It's literally the guy getting up in the morning and say, I had breakfast today with uh, Commander so-and-so, and, and we had eggs for breakfast. One of the things, the curious things that I've always wondered about the trail is kind of the urbanization along the trail. Um, you see this probably most clearly in uh, Chihuahua City, uh, in the capital city now of Chihuahua, where nearby there was a mining strike, but uh, the location of the mining strike wasn't selected as the, the city, but rather just adjacent along the El Camino Real de Tierra Adentro, Chihuahua was founded. Can you can you speak to that at, at all? That that kind of process. Well, the, the number of places that were really urban were pretty few and far between. They did exist. Obviously, Chihuahua City is one. Arizbe was to some extent. Alamos was another one. There were no proto-urban centers like that in California, for example. 
what you saw in terms of the landscape was those few places. And, and in a place like Chihuahua City, you could get anything. There would have been full array, I think, of uh, shops and manufacturing and, and lots of merchants bringing goods in. And you would have seen some of the more elaborate cultural life. And that might even include uh, things like musical performances and, uh, you know, the kind of of life associated with uh, carnivals that we can really see in the 19th century is better documented, but it was around in the late colonial period as well. And various sorts of social groups that even included things like Freemasonry after 1800. So you would have seen that in those urban centers, but they would have been few and far between. Most of the frontier people were living in, in, in much less elaborate places that are associated with like the mining camps. And uh, for a long time, I've tried to figure out what just what were those mining camps like, because there were a few, of course, notably in Arizona and Aravaca and probably over by Guivavi, there was a little bit of a kind of mining mining camp existence. And, and what we see based on what I've been able to look at in Sonora in particular are um, they're pretty rough and tumble places and they they really don't have a lot of buildings. I mean, these are places made up of lean-tos and tents and very crude jacales and chozas. So they're like little huts. It is, it is one of the ironies that the quality of the goods that we see in these places, which includes very fancy crockery and, and, and quite an array of metal luxury goods, are found juxtaposed with some very, very primitive living conditions. So the you know the average miner is eating on the sitting on patates on the floor, you know he's not sitting at a chair and a table, and it's it, it's all very crude, very crude. So um, but what when I first started reading about the mining frontier, I was thinking, well, it would be like Guanajuato or something, you know, where there were big buildings and you know elaborate ore processing and things like that. And what you instead see is very informal arrangements. In fact, much more informal than even the presidios. Now, you can see this in a very direct way in Tubac, because, of course, Tubac, at the end of the Mexican period, became a major mining center, not so much for ore extraction, but for ore processing. And the population of the place just, you know, huge, tremendous number of people were living in Tubac. And um, there were several hotels. I mean, it's quite, quite an amazing array. And there's enough evidence that I don't think it was anyone's imagination that it was like that. But there's almost no archaeological evidence of that. And the reason why is because much of those structures were extremely informal and poorly constructed. And so, like, for example, in Tubac, the best evidence you have for where the 1850s miners were hanging out are the tin cans. Because tin cans had already come in by about then, and they were very popular in the mining frontier. And there was a peculiar style of soldering the tin cans, which is easily dated to like Civil War era and before. And you see tons of those all over the place in, in Tubac. But what you don't see is like the basement of the hotel, so to speak. Those just aren't visible if they're there at all. I'm, I suspect that they aren't there. I think they never were there. It was all done with the you know, lean-to. And this is very consistent with the kind of informal housing you see in the like California gold rush as well, the early stages. 
it, it's really, you know, people are living in very hut-like conditions. It's not, you don't need those fancy houses. But, but how overall a, a Real de Minas would have looked in Sonora, I'd really be interested to, to kind of have a better insight into that. You know, uh, there typically was a, at least a few stores. What were they like? Uh, how were they organized? And um, there were often government officials, you know, who were taking the King's Fifth and stuff. And, and how did that all work in, in terms of the space inside of a town? I'm not sure. But what you don't have are elaborate mining camps similar to the sorts of things you would see today if you made a visit to the California gold fields along Highway 49. And of course, the buildings that you see largely there are ones that were constructed not during the initial phases of the gold rush, but most of them are structures that were built much later in the Civil War era and, and, and later than that even. In the 1870s and 80s. So uh, it's an interesting question. But the look of the world these people lived in it was clearly different from, I think, what we imagine frequently. But, you know, that's one of the overall ironies of frontier life. We see this in the, in the case of Tubac and Tucson and much of the frontier. We see this reality of um, a strange mixture of luxury and elegance and extremely crude infrastructure. So while the average settler probably was dining off of perhaps Chinese porcelain and, and, and uh, tin enameled ware from Puebla, he was doing so in a hut. And he wasn't sitting in a chair. He was sitting on the floor on a patate. It's just an interesting set of contradictions. I think if we'd been transported back into that world, we would have seen similar contradictions even in the cities of that world, in places like Mexico City and Madrid and, and Boston and London, you would have seen that same mixture of, of elegance and luxury goods kind of in a context of um, very primitive circumstances. At least if you lived in Sonora, you didn't have to live with all the pollution that would have been seen in a place like Guadalajara or Mexico City. It was a cleaner place to live. And I think as a result, probably one where you had a better chance of survival. Yeah, there's, um, you know, speaking of Reales, there's that famous one that's in Western Sonora when they found the gold placer deposits by what's now Caborca, the Cienaguilla, the Little Marsh. And from what I've read, it even rivaled the population of Alamos at one point. It did briefly. You know, these boom towns would, would get tremendous numbers of people that would come in. Cienaguilla was a real challenging place, partly because there wasn't enough water. And um, I've read a lot about one of the things they did to process gold there was they actually winnowed it using the wind in this elaborate process. But it was it was a real challenge. But Senegia made a lot of people rich. And of course, it was discovered, as I recall, by some soldiers who were uh, chasing Indians, which is to say prospecting. But it is one of the interesting things about the soldiers, too, is almost all of them had enough knowledge of mining to recognize silver and gold ore pretty readily, you know, so they were always on the lookout for another mine. Yeah, that's something really, uh, that and, you know, the fact that they were brewing mezcal is something that, you know, two interesting trades that, that you've kind of brought to light uh, in my attention and, and hopefully others as well about, you know, what were the daily activities like for the average resident in Tubac in the 1750s and the 1760s. 
it's pretty pretty interesting to think about that. Yeah, I think that's a that is a very interesting thing to look at the like, quality of life and what people did from a daily basis. And it is no question that even though we often kind of conceive of them as living kind of a mundane, repetitious life, there really was it wasn't much like that at all. They were part-time farmers, part-time ranchers, part-time miners, and and of course the social structure of the families is also quite interesting and intriguing. Uh, one of the things you see is a strong tendency for the the women, elderly women, to become head of families, and they control the family finances. And um, you also have this interesting Catholic tradition of household worship, which are largely um, organized by women. It's kind of interesting in contrast to the church activities, which are organized by a priest. Uh, women were the ones that were frequently responsible for the family devotions. And any family that, even one that had just a crude hut, would often have some corner of the hut set aside for a family altar. And um, people would wake up in the morning, sometimes singing hymns. And it was really different from the world that we we imagine. And bits and pieces of that are can be put back together again. There are descriptions also of the nightlife in the presidios in California that, you know, they were really kind of a partying crowd. And pe- people would spend until late hours singing and dancing. But it was far from the kind of repetitious, blase sensibility that we sometimes get from the official records. You know, like so much of history, the records really dictate a lot of what is said. And so there's been this big emphasis on, well, they were formal and military. And they just repeated, you know, this this pattern of, you know, being soldiers. And that that's really a mischaracterization, too. I mean, they were soldiers, but they also did all these other things. And in many cases, they were more important to them. And then, of course, you've got this whole social class system built on top of it, which made everything more complicated. You had, you know, basically two classes of soldiers. You had the regular soldiers, and then you had people that were known as Soldados distinguidos. And the distinguidos, they were generally noblemen, but what they had was they had rights that were quite different from the average soldier. For example, they couldn't be asked to um, perform menial labor tasks. And um, there was an incident that ended up in almost having a duel in California between uh, one of the Arguellos and one of his soldiers, where he had asked his soldier to light his cigarette, and it led to a, a near duel because the soldier he asked to light a cigarette felt it was beneath him to be asked to light someone's cigarette. And so you worry, you wonder about how those social tensions would have been seen in a place like Tubac, where you know the, the, the first commander was definitely a nobleman, and Anza certainly conceived of himself as a nobleman. And the difference between noble people and the average person was such that under normal circumstances, there would hardly be communication, let alone familiarity. It's interesting in Ruby's inspection, he has a lot of good things to say about Anza in the 1760s in Tubac. But he does say that it's strongly suggested that, that, that Anza was a little too amenable and, and familiar with his soldiers, a little bit too much identifying with them. It wasn't quite, 
quite appropriate. And of course, there's, I don't think there's any question that Anta had a, had a soft spot for a Beldarine son, who um, I believe he was his godson, but he was he was a scoundrel. You know, he embezzled the the whole um, money set aside to build the Presidio of Tucson at one point. I mean, he was he was a scoundrel. And Anza would tend to find him a place and argue that he shouldn't be punished. And as a rule, I would think Anza generally followed that. You can see it in other places, too. He was not a harsh individual when it came to punishing people that were not necessarily deserving mercy. Like Jose Antonio Vildosola should have been, you know, he should have been court-martialed and driven out of the army. But I think the reason why he wasn't was because people like Anza would speak up on his behalf. And of course, the other thing was his brother. I mean, Jose Antonio's brother, Gabriel, who had been, you know, was commander at Fronteras, was, was an excellent soldier. And um, I think it kept him out of being punished more. And then, of course, he reforms his career. He, you know, he basically goes out of prominence when Anza comes back on, I think it's the second expedition, and uh, he's ordered to go up and to Terranate and figure out what the hell's going on. And when he gets there, he finds Vildosola's in the jail and the men basically are mutiny. And they say, we're not mutiny against the king. This guy has just been stealing all our money and giving us none of the goods he's, you know, he's contracted to do. And so then there was an investigation. But what they didn't do, you would think, especially since Anza was really pissed off that he couldn't go straight to Mexico City, was that they would punish Vildosola with some real you know, well, like, for example, court-martial him, or um, if not that, you know, sentence him to some hard labor or something. But that's not what happens. Instead, he's rotated to staff duty. And that seems to be a pattern on the frontier as a whole, is if you were really inadequate, they would rotate you to staff duty, and then you would be under the direct supervision of a senior military guy. And he remained there until... He eventually, Jose Antonio did, until he was able to, um, I think, essentially bribe Teodoro de Croix to get his command back at Terranate at the end of the time at Santa Cruz de Terranate. So um, Jose Antonio is commander at Terranate when they evacuate and go back into Sonora onto the what is today the other side of the border. But I, I, in reading about that, little by little, I kind of pieced it together that uh, what what was going on. And I think the evidence is pretty strong. Jose and the Vilosolas had a lot of money and um, he used that money as a way of convincing the commandant general that he should be restored to command. Now, officially he did it by saying, well, then I will personally pay for evacuating the troops. I will pay for this and that. But my guess is that Teodoro probably was getting his hands. You know, he was getting cash too which leads to all other you know, sets of questions about, because he's another one of those kind of icons of, uh, of the frontier that's uh, seen as very heroic. And uh, I think the evidence is pretty strong that he was probably taking a bribe from Jose Antonio Vildosola. Fascinating, fascinating stories that kind of traveled through all those different routes. And, you know, it's, it's such a great conversation to have with you because, you know, nowadays we're just zooming down the, you know, the federal and interstate highways of the Southwest, like the I-19 here between Tubac and Tucson, and to think about, 
you know, travel and, and the sense of time and, and also this kind of fascinating contrast that you've presented of this picture of, of both the primitive and, and also the luxury. It really brings a lot of color into the, the world of, of where, we, where we live here in the Southwest. So I want to thank you so much, Jack. Well, the, the, the other thing that would have been striking traveling that route in particular, say between Tucson and, and, and Phoenix, is one of the strange realities of the frontier, which was that if you know very much about Apaches and their beliefs about the afterlife, Apaches as a group are afraid of almost nothing except their dead relatives. And because of this, the Maricopa and other groups along the Colorado learned this. And their solution was to kill Apaches when they caught them and to string up their bodies on cactus or trees. And, and of course, the Maricopa in particular also learned from the, the friars that it, crucifixion was a terrible way to die. So they used to crucify Apaches and they did it literally on the trails. And the reason they did it was because it was a safe, it then became a safe place to camp. Because if you were camping under the withered remains of a semi-mummified Apache hanging from a cactus, that was safe because the Apaches are not going to go around there. Not because they're afraid that you're gonna fight them, but they're afraid of their dead relative. And quite a number of Spanish soldiers learned this. For example, the siege of, of Tucson, Captain Allende, and I think it was in the 1780s, he lops off the head of an Apache and he sticks it on the end of his lance. Well, that head on the end of his lance wasn't designed to terrorize the Apaches in the sense that they were, look at me, I can kill Apaches. It was, here's the head of your dead relative, get out of the way. Um, so he, I think that the, you know, the frontier people knew this. Now, wh where this really shows up is in the 1850s, you get a number of travelers that are traveling along the Gila Trail, you know, and headed for California. And they describe these bodies hanging willy-nilly here and there. But like I said, it wasn't that, that there was just a level of, I think, cruelty or hatred involved with this. It really was a practical way of finding a safe place to camp was, uh, you know, going from one dead body to the next. But can you imagine how many people drive today from San Diego to to Phoenix or to Tucson, and they're on that same route. And they, you know, no one imagines crucified people along that route. And the bodies, and the bodies are described as, you know, the skin became leathery and uh, reduced to sort of skeleton and then they slowly fall apart. People don't imagine that as part of that world, but it was very much a part of that world. And of course that begs the question of, you know, how much of that would have even been visible going back earlier. But I, I kind of suspect at the time of the Anza expeditions before that it had become formalized, but it certainly was around in the early 19th century. But you never know. I mean, one of the most amazing accounts that I've read that um, Jim Officer pointed me at was uh, an, an account of the Gila River Pimas who were being attacked by the Apaches. The interesting thing is the Apaches dressed up as Spanish soldiers. They had Queras, they had shields, they had everything, and attacked them. And it took a while for the Pimas to figure out this was an Apache fake. But that's how sophisticated we're talking about people. You know, they would they would disguise themselves as, as their enemies to create 
chaos among the Pimas. So the, it, it's a much more sophisticated military situation than I think it's sometimes supposed. And it's also, I mean, the reality of that luxury and, and, and kind of crudeness, there was also this tremendous air reality of danger. I mean, there's no question that the frontier was a place you could easily lose your life. The sense that death was near must have been very strong among all the inhabitants. And so it, it isn't it isn't that you need to just emphasize that, that aspect of the story that, you know, people got killed a lot, but it, it's a mistake not to include it as part of the explanation of what life was like. It, it, it leads to a lot of confusion, when, especially when you're trying to reconstruct something like daily life in Tubac or Tucson, to, um, to not recognize that as part of the reality of, of what, what it was like. And of course, it lasted really into the, the 1870s in, in the, the region as a whole, dangerous. And, and of course, the question of Apache raids, you know, leading into the 20th century, I mean, the late Tom Naylor thought that there might still be some groups of Apaches in the Sierra Madre that were still operating as, as, as by raiding. Um, and he was always interested in collecting details. And I, I think that what is clear is that as late as World War I, it was going on. I can't tell you the number of, of graves I've seen in southern Arizona that are, are marked unknown, killed by the Apaches, 1913. I mean, very much more recently than we imagine. And when I was a graduate student at U of A, I still occasionally ran into old timers that were in their 80s and 90s who would tell me about the Indian Wars. I mean, it was not that long ago. It's hard to imagine now because the world has changed so much, but it was not that long ago. Yeah, visiting that Fort Bowie, uh, you know, you, you see even those German-style helmets, those spiked helmets, uh, which were popular back in, what, the 1880s, uh, you know, so um, in 1890s. So it's pretty fascinating to think that we have that, although we're only, you know, a century away from that, that it was still, you had a connection with the old-timers during your time there at the U of A. Um, really interesting to think about. Yeah, I remember one of the most interesting things that I had an experience of when I was doing a project in downtown Tucson across from the courthouse, I had a very elderly man come once. And when he was a kid, the Camp Grant massacre had taken place. And so he had these reminiscences of the Camp Grant massacre and he was literally in tears about it. Um, it was really surprising. But like I said, once you get out away from Tucson and um, places like I remember there's a little town called Paradise, Arizona. And I went to the cemetery there and there were markers. And I said, you know, I was I was frankly amazed at the recent, you know, the recent dates. I did, I don't think I ever saw a marker like that from after World War One, but right up to World War One. It was still risky business. So that's part of the reality, too. We live in a world where it's very dangerous that we can candy coat the past into this sort of utopian sort of fantasy. And of course, nowadays that's less likely than it is to present, you know, almost everyone on the planet as victims of like colonialism or something. And that's an exaggeration too. People manage to work out their lives and enjoy themselves despite all this. They lived in this context of survival 
and maintaining a very elaborate culture that was dynamic despite all these horrible distractions, including the Indian Wars. And that's one of the reasons why Norteño culture, I think, is so fascinating. And when you look at, at Sonoran culture, it really re reflects this, I think, ability to survive and to flourish despite these extreme challenges, the reality of death. And, and of course, we, we're really only talking about one aspect of that. I mean, the, the Indian Wars were terrible, but the, the fact that there wasn't adequate medical care, that it was so remote that, you know, things that we easily survived today would have killed you. It, it really is amazing. It's amazing not only that they survived, but they actually produced a, a kind of civilization which is still thriving today. It's, it's pretty amazing. Well, I think that's a great note to kind of leave this podcast on. It's It's been a really kind of colorful journey through, you know, movement in what well, the former northern New Spain. And I want to thank you, Jack, for sharing your your knowledge with us and uh, to dig deeper into those records, like you said, and, and explore what else that we can find about um, this really rich, culturally rich uh, landscape that we live in. So thank you, Jack. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking about the frontier. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find more information by visiting us at borderlandia.org. We are a binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. Thank you.